Welcome to the Life Over Coffee podcast, conversations for transformation. Hello, everyone. Thank you so much for joining me. For those of you who don't know, my name is Rick Thomas, and I work at Life Over Coffee. The street address to our little coffee shop is lifeovercoffee.com. And if you haven't been to our store, I would love for you to come. It is in cyberspace. It is a, a sanctification center, and it is full of resources on all things pertaining to life and godliness. If you like to read, I have millions of words for you to read on all kinds of topics. If you prefer to listen to audio, well, we have hundreds upon hundreds of podcasts, literally. If you prefer to watch a video, you can do that as well. We also have a search box, and so when you come into our little coffee shop, you can plug in the search box and just type in a word, type in a phrase, and and you can pull up anything that you want. Uh, Things pertaining to what is going on in our lives from a Christocentric, bibliocentric perspective. And I want to share one of those things with you right now. I want to talk about one of the more contentious problems that we have in a marriage relationship, and that is a lack of respect from a wife to a husband. But as I say that, I know that many triggers can go off, and so let me make an appeal. Let's put our triggers aside uh, because a problem simply stated as a wife not respecting her husband is never, ever, ever that simple. In counseling, we call that the presentation problem, meaning that's the issue they come in the door with. That is the statement that they make as as for why they are here. But as a biblical counselor, you know that the presentation problem is like the tip of an iceberg. And so it is essential for the counselor to do that investigatory work, to do the work of discovery because he or she knows that the problem is always bigger than the simply stated reason that they came in for counseling. And the simply stated reason that I'm presenting to you is a wife is not respecting her husband, and so how should we go about counseling that situation? If you just take it as a just a, a uni-perspective problem, you're going to miss the problem because I guarantee you that if a wife is not respecting her husband, there is a lot under the tip of that iceberg, and you have to, you have to get underneath the surface and find out all the complexities of what is going on. Now, that applies to any situation. Any, any kind of conflict, situational difficulty, personal problem that somebody is struggling with or a couple of people are struggling with, with each other, it doesn't matter. A discipleship opportunity is always like an iceberg. And so you hear what they say, and that's what they're presenting to you, but you've got to get underneath. And so let's, 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 set, our, let's set our triggers aside because I'm not going to address this in a simplistic fashion of a wife just not 
respecting her husband. I want to get underneath it, and I want you to follow along in this journey. Now, I would love for you to get on our website. Again, the street address, lifeovercoffee.com. Drive right up to our sanctification center and come in the front door. And then I would like for you to go to aisle 14 under marriage. And what I would like for you to do is to search for this article, actually, And the title of it is, Should a Wife Respect Her Unkind Husband? And you can pull it up. Now, notice what I just did there. Initially, I said the problem is about a wife not respecting her husband. But now I have modified the word husband, and I I am saying, should a wife respect her unkind husband? husband. Now that just added a level of complexity, and that is one of the points that I want to make here. There is always a level of complexity, no matter what they present to you initially, and you have to figure out what those complexities are. Now the reason that I would love for you to read this article, or you can listen to it if you want to podcast, or you can watch it on a video. But the reason I want you to go find the article is because I'm taking Ephesians 5, the passage on marriage that many of you are so familiar with, and I'm starting at verse 22, and I'm working all the way through the passage, that extended paragraph on the relationship between a husband and a wife. And I am, as we say, I am unpacking it. But what what I want you to see in that passage is that that passage is actually a chiasm. And I'll explain a little bit later what a chiasm is. It is a literary device. It is a way of writing. And there are a lot of chiasms in the Bible. And when when you come across one, you really want to lay it out so that you can really understand what the writer is saying. This passage has a chiastic structure to it, and what I've done is that I have mapped out that chiastic structure so that you can look at this entire passage in a mind map, in a chiasm, because that's what it is. And when you look at it as a chiasm and understand it as a chiasm, then you can really hone in on the point of the passage, and that will help us not to eisegetically read into the passage, meaning we are interpreting it to be something that Paul never intended primarily at all. And so if you go to our website, lifeovercoffee.com, look for the article, Should a Wife Respect Her Unkind Husband? Then I want you to get this mind map that lays out this chiastic structure so that you can see it visually. And this is really for those of you who want to do a deeper dive into this passage. I think every husband and wife have looked, every Christian husband and wife have looked at this passage, and sometimes we piecemeal it. We'll pull out a little here and a little there and say, well, this is what you should do, and this is what you should do. And we, we make these pieces that we pull out to be the primary point that Paul was making, but that is not true in many cases. And so I want to identify the primary point of the passage, and then we can make some application. And so if you go to the article, Should a Wife Respect Her Unkind Husband?, you can read it. But you can also pull out uh, this mind map of the chiasm 
that really just diagrams this passage, and I think it will give you some extra insight into what Paul was saying. One of the problems with some marriage is a lack of respect from the wife to the husband, and so a a, a proper probing question would automatically follow. So when they come in and say that, well, my wife doesn't respect me, well, I want to ask a very broad question like, well, what does that mean? For example, is her lack of respect the entire problem in the marriage, or are there other complexities that might contribute to her lack of respect? And every counselor who is worth his salt, who is any good, already knows the answer to that question. And so he's asking a question that he knows the answer. So he's leading them so that they would come to a place of discovery themselves so they can look beyond, uh, underneath the surface of this presenting problem that my wife doesn't respect me because there are always complexities in relational conflict. But why do some folks focus only on a lack of respect in situations like this? And I've seen this so often in counseling. Now, I am not bashing on men here, but in some of the content that I produce, it's it's impossible to, to steer away from the obvious. And so this is a problem. And I trust that wives would listen to this and, and, and not say, yeah, Rick, go get them. I'm not trying to get anybody. I'm just pointing to it is a legitimate problem that sometimes with some men that they will extract this, the last four words of this passage of Scripture, see that she respects her husband, and they will extract Paul's words about respecting, and they will miss the context of this passage. And so what I want to do is to take a look at the context and the content of this pivotal passage about marriage. Now, I'm just going to read this passage to you. I realize it's lengthy, but it is important that we have it framed in our minds. And for those of you who are not driving or not jogging on the beach or wherever you may be, if this is an appropriate time for you to sit down, then I would appeal to you to sit and open your Bible to Ephesians 5, read along with me, and even mark it up if you are prone to write it in your Bible or take notes outside of your Bible so that you can really see what Paul is saying. So here's the passage beginning at Ephesians 5, verse 22. He says, husbands, well, I guess this is verse 25. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. Now, what you're going to see in this passage is that as Christ loved the church, that is the point of the passage. And Paul mentions this uh, like three times. The point of the passage is Christ and the church. That's the point of the passage. So he says, husband, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of the water with the word, so that he may present the church to himself. This passage is talking about Christ and the church. That is the point of the passage that he may present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she, the church, might be holy and without blemish. And then he uses an illustration to talk about Christ in the church. He says, in the same way. 
Husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church. He's stating it again, the point of the passage. It's Christ and the church. Because we are members of his body, we are unified with him. And then he quotes Genesis 2. Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. And then he says this mystery is profound. And I am saying that it refers to, here it comes again, Christ and the church. The point of the passage is not about husbands and wives. The point of the passage is about Christ and the church. He finishes up by saying, however, let each one of you love his wife as himself and let the wife see that she respects her husband. And that's how he finishes in verse number 32. Let the wife see that she respects her husband. Those are the last four words, she respects her husband. She respects her husband. It is, those four words, it is a section of Scripture where Paul is talking about Christ and the church, the point of the passage and the context of the passage. These last four words are part of a more fabulous body of thought, which begs the question. Let's say, for example, when you read a letter from a friend, someone writes you a letter, a friend from overseas, would you ever take the last four words of that letter and develop a way of thinking that is divorced from the context of the letter, no matter what the letter is, you just pull out the last four words and, and develop an a entire way of thinking that is divorced or out of context from the body of the letter that your friend just wrote you. Most people would consider that to be odd, if not a dangerous way of interpreting and applying a letter from a friend. And so the prudent thing to do is, is to read the last four words in context with all the words of the letter, not disengaging them from the main point that the writer wants to make. You see, every Bible passage has one point, not two. One point, not two. Each author's intent is singular, not multiple. Now, you can make many applications from a passage of Scripture, but we can only have one point. And, of course, the applications cannot be disconnected from the point of the passage, or our application could alter the point of the passage, and now we changing the point of the passage is called eisegesis. Eisegesis is where a person reads into a passage what he wants that passage to say, rather than allowing the passage to speak for itself. And this problem of an eisegetical reading of Scripture is why it's essential to understand Paul's point in what has been primarily considered a, a passage on marriage. This is not a primarily a passage on marriage. This is a passage. He was very clear that this passage is about Christ and the church. And so before I go into a, 
a fuller understanding of what those fi- final four words mean, see that she respects her husband, it would help to talk about what Paul intends with the whole passage. And nearly, nearly every time that those four words, wife, respect your husband, every time they're lopped off and lifted out of the passage, I've seen this so much in, in counseling where, where Paul's words, they become twisted and they tend to mean something. They're wielded as something, like a weapon to mean something that Paul did not intend. Namely, that the wife is to respect her husband with no context, no qualification, and no elaboration. And that is an embarrassing interpretation of the passage at best, and it is damaging to wives and families at its worst. Mercifully, Paul did not leave us in doubt to what he meant because the meaning of the passage is is right in the middle of it. And that is verse number 27. So that he, Christ, may present the church to himself. The point of this passage is about Christ and the church and what that means to us. Paul is elevating this mysterious idea of Christ and the church. He says in the passage, this is a a mystery. And so he's elevating this mysterious idea. He wants us to understand this relationship of Christ and the church. He uses a husband and wife analogy to illustrate Christ and the church. And so, and not only understanding the mysterious idea of Christ and the church, but the particular emphasis of the unity between the head, Christ, and the body, church. And so he wants us to understand the mystery, particularly the unity. And it's important that we understand that so that he may present to himself this unified head and body, Christ and church. Paul was abundantly clear what he wanted to highlight in this passage. And again, it was Christ and the church, not the husband and wife. The husband and wife in this passage are illustrations that point to his main idea, Christ and the church. And so Paul was very careful and clear to make sure that we see the beauty and the unity of Christ and the church. And you do see that in the heart of the Ephesians passage Again, in verse number 27, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. And his next words after verse 27, in the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He's making an application now. That's his application in the same way, likewise. Husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He's making an application of the main point of Christ and the church, not the other way around. Paul is introducing a situation, marriage, a particular situation that everyone will be familiar with. And that situation, marriage, is similar 
to the point of the passage, Christ in the church. He doesn't talk about the husband and wife and then say in the same way, this is how you should think about Christ in the church. No, that's backwards. That would make marriage the main point and, and Christ and the church the illustration that points to the marriage point. But that's not what he's doing. The main point is Christ and the church, and he's using marriage as an illustration to point to Christ and the church. To say, to say that the point of the passage is about husbands and wives while Christ and the church are secondary at best Well, that is to read into an agenda that Paul does not have. And so each time he talks about marriage in this passage, and you you can read it carefully, he connects it to Christ and the church. And so he's using marriage as an illustration to highlight this great mystery of the unified relationship between Jesus and us, the body of Christ. And you see that with his conjunction in the same way as I have mentioned already. Also, you see it when he talks about the mystery of the husband and wife relationship. He says the profundity of that mystery of the husband-wife relationship was to point to Christ and the church, which brings you back to the past to the point of the passage. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, Paul says, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. And so again, he's using marriage as a sub-illustration to point to the main idea. Now, there's another way to understand the point of the passage And that's by looking at how it is laid out. Paul wrote this passage, and he used a standard literary device called a chiasm or chiastic structure. Now, if you're not familiar with a chiastic structure, I have some links inside this article that you can click on, or uh, what would be a fun exercise is just uh, uh, type in Uh, chiastic structure uh, in the Bible. And when you do that, there will be several illustrations of chiasms in the Bible. And and chiasms is essential. This is actually a part of your Bible study. Uh, This should be at some point something that you want to look at because chiasms was essential to early Christianity. Uh, It was very important in ancient text. It was a way of striking a balance in a work of of literature. And you can find examples of chiasmus in uh, ancient Greek, Hebrew, and Latin text in many religious scriptures. The word chiasmus starts with the Greek letter chi, or chi, as some would say, C-H-I, the Greek letter chi. Also, the letter that begins with Christ's name. Now, the letter is in an X. Now, that's essential of of understanding a a chiastic structure, and I I don't want to geek out too much here, and that's why I would appeal to you to go uh, to lifeovercoffee.com and look at the chiastic structure of this passage because I can't communicate it to you in audio or video, but uh, seeing is much helpful. And so the X, if you think about and X, then you're looking at a chiastic structure. 
and the X, of course, uh, points to the cross upon which Christ was crucified. So a chiasmus was important for Christian poets uh, to represent Christ and his crucifixion. A chiasm is writing something and then restating it or a similar idea in reverse order. And so it, it would look like this in, in letter form. A, B, and so the, the A at the top of the X and the B moves to the center part of the X and then B, A, and it moves back to the outer part of the X at the bottom. And so you see that kind of X shape there, A, B, B, A, and each line is written that way. And so you have A, a statement, then B, a statement, and then there will be a rephrasing of the statement with B, and then a rephrasing of the statement with an A. And so a chiasm looks like A, B, B, A. That is a typical chiasm. Now, sometimes if they wanted to really punctuate the point of a chiasm, they would put an X, and it would be A, B, X, B, A. Now, this is a standard literary device. It's not exclusive to the Bible, though you will find this writing technique throughout the Bible, and that's why it would be an outstanding study. Uh, in fact, I have one that I uh, pulled up here. I think it is uh, Matthew 7, a passage of Scripture, uh, Matthew 6, rather. This is Matthew 6, 24. This is a chiastic structure where Jesus is talking. He says, no one can serve two masters. Uh, that is A. For either he will hate the one, B, and love the other, C. And then he flips all that around and says everything in reverse order. C, or he will be devoted to one, B, and despise the other, A, and he'll finish where he started. You cannot serve God and wealth. And that is a chiastic structure from Matthew 6.24. No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and wealth. That is a chiastic structure where you start out making a statement and you work it toward the middle and then you say it in reverse order uh, as you come back out. And so I want to give you five chiasms that many of them you are familiar with just to help you to understand for those of you who are unfamiliar with chiasms to understand it. John F. Kennedy, here's a chiasm. Ask not what your country can do for you. There's your statement. And then he says, ask what you can do for your country. Do you hear the reverse order? Cicero said, one should eat to live, not live to eat. That's another chiasm. Now, the point of a chiasm is, is that it's, it's really punctuating and to help you see uh, and that's the literary device here, is saying it in, in such a poetic way, uh, a structured way, that it doesn't want you to miss the point. Here's one, the motto of the three musketeers, all for one and one for all. And so you start at the top of the X, move to the center, and then from the center you move out. Here's another one. This is from a, an advertising slogan from Dodge Trucks. They take good care of their trucks because their trucks take good care of them. And then finally, Ben Franklin. By failing to prepare, you are preparing to fail. Now, those are some very simple chiasms, but it makes it memorable. It makes it visual. And 
you really do get the point of what the person is saying. Well, Ephesians 5 is a chiastic structure in a more developed way because there is an X in between AB, X, and then BA. And so the X marks the centerpiece of the thought, which is the intentional inserted emphasis of the chiasm, the main point, if you will, which is what we have in Paul's chiastic development of Ephesians 5, 22 through verse 33. And as you can see in the chiastic structure, especially if you go to this article and get it how I mapped it out for you, you'll see that X marks the spot, the intentional inserted emphasis of the passage which says, so that he may present the church to himself. That is the centerpiece of the chiastic structure. That is X. And so with Christ and the church fixed as the point of the passage, the next most obvious thing is, is how Paul drives home a unity theme between Christ and the church. And this is what the chiasm really does. It drives home a unity theme all the way through of Christ and the church. Paul consistently writes each element from verses 22 down to 33 to show the harmonious relationship between Christ and the church. And then he makes an application of that unity between the husband and wife. And so you cannot have one, like Christ, or the illustration, the husband, without the other, the church, or the illustration, the wife. They are not connected like they were contiguous, meaning they were juxtaposed to each other, but they are part of each other. They are one flesh. Christ and the church are one flesh, not two. Now, of course, there is a discussion that you can have about leading and, and following, about leadership and submission, and about husbands loving and wives respecting. Yes, th that is a discussion. That is a role discussion. And we should have that discussion about roles. How do you lead? How do you love? How do you submit? How do you respect? But that's not the point of this passage, and that's where you want to be careful that you don't pull out certain phrases in this passage to drive home whatever someone's personal agenda is, because that would be dangerous. The chiasm reflects that you cannot have one idea without the other. You can't have Christ without the church and his illustration of husband and wife. You can't have husband without, wife, without the wife. They both are essential, and they make a unified whole. If the wife submits to the husband, then there must be a husband for her to submit to. If the husband is the head of the wife, there must be a wife for him to be the head of, for them to function well, because they are one. Christ and the church are one, not two. At every turn, you see the unification of two parts. They are now one flesh, a mystery, husband and wife, that points to Christ and the church.
And so with Christ and the church, as the point of the passage, and unity as the theme, if you really have that, then you're ready to address Paul's application points. His application points about husbands and wives, about leading and following and loving and respecting. And I trust that I've made a strong case for the point of the passage and the harmonious unity of Christ in the church and his illustration, Paul's illustrations of husbands and wives. And so the point of this article, or the point that I want to make now, is about a wife not respecting her husband, or more pointedly, should she respect her unkind husband? I added that modifier at the beginning. And as I stated at the beginning, I mean, the answer is an absolute yes. She should respect her husband. Yeah, she should respect her husband. That, that's, that's a yes. But here is the problem. If you take those four words, the last four words of that text, and you lop them off and lift them out of the context of the passage, then all you're going to do is rail at the wife for not respecting the husband without addressing the reasons that she might not be respecting or might not be submitting to her husband. Let me give you a few reasons. And again, you have to get underneath the tip of the iceberg to find out all the fuller complexities of what is going on without just taking those four words out of context and mandating that she respect her husband with no modification, no caveat, no discovery, no investigation. Here are some of the reasons a wife may not respect her husband. She may not respect her husband because she's not a Christian. Thus, she, re she rejects Christian teaching. Well, imagine trying to force her to respect her husband and she's not even a believer. Her mind is dark and futile. Her, her heart is, is hard. I mean, at best, all you're going to get out of her is behavioral modification. Is that what you want? Do you want to solve the problem? Or do you just want some kind of, of reality in your home that she's respecting me, but we haven't dealt with her, in this case, an unregenerate heart? Another reason she may not respect her husband is because she is a hardline feminist who rejects any Christian teaching, especially anything about respecting or submitting to a man. There's a lot of women who struggle this way, no question. Some could be unregenerate and some could be hardline feminists that they're not going to submit to anyone. A third reason, she may rebel against her husband because she has a sinful disposition to rebel. This is just how she is bent. She is a rebel at heart, and she wants to rebel, and she is rebelling in this specific way. A fourth reason, she may not respect her husband is because he's harsh, he's unkind, he's brutish, making it hard for her to respect or to submit to him. Here's a fifth reason that she doesn't respect him is that she may want to respect him, but he makes it hard to do. She is honestly trying to respect her husband, but he is just not a good person, and it makes it difficult. And these are just five reasons, and I'm sure you could think of more as to why she's not respecting her husband. But if you pull this passage out of context, lop off the last four words, and just mandate gaslight and say you will respect your husband without getting the fuller context of the unity and harmony that Paul is talking about in this passage, you have to get inside why is there not unity? Why is there disharmony in this marriage relationship? 
The word respect means reverence for her husband. It is, it is reverential fear similar to how we think about the fear of God. She's not afraid of her husband. We are not afraid of God. The fear of God doesn't mean that we're afraid of God. So it's a reverential respect attitude toward her husband. But if she is frightened of her husband, then having reverential fear, those are two radically opposing things. And so if she is not respecting her husband, you've got to ask why rather than mandating it, because the theme of the passage is unity, and there is something that is disrupting that unity that is a little more complex than just her not respecting. If the, if the husband is harsh or unkind or mean to her, she will be afraid of him. And this reality, this possibility, is why it's essential to interpret Paul's passage correctly. It's about unity between Christ and the church, which we should model similarly in like manner, Paul says. A husband and wife relationship. Let me give you an illustration. If your calf muscle had a painful cramp, you can make a blanket mandate and, and tell your leg that you need to get it together and you need to stop cramping. Perhaps you can yell at your calf muscle. Uh, maybe you could say embarrassing or condemning or manipulative things to get your calf muscle in line. But you know that's ridiculous because you know that your leg is part of a body, a unified whole. I mean, there's no doubt that your leg should not have cramps. A, a wife should respect her husband. But if the wife is not respecting the husband or your leg has cramps, yelling at your leg or yelling at your wife, that is a simplistic, elementary, sophomoric way of trying to make something happen. It would be best to do all that you could do to ensure that you don't have cramps anymore, manipulating your leg without careful analysis or addressing the whole problem. Well, that would be ignorant. And in nearly every case, you're going to find more things wrong in your body than just an isolated cramp in your leg. Why? Because no part of your body is uninfluenced by the rest of your body. And so you have to do a thorough examination to find why this area is hurting. And I promise you it will have something to do with other parts of your body. And when it comes to Christ and the church, we know that, if there, that, that the only problem that we could have is in the church because Christ the head is perfect in every way. But when it comes to marriage problems like a disrespectful wife, it would be careless and it would be harmless or harmful to think the husband has no role in their one flesh problem. Perhaps he is squeaky clean and, and the lack of respect is all on the wife, perhaps. But to put the total blame on a disrespecting wife without a complex examination of the unified body is misguided and a misapplication of this passage. The title of this is, Should a Wife Respect Her Husband? I would love for you to read it. I would love for you to take a look at this chiastic structure that I have developed in a mind map inside the article. Let me wrap up with a couple of quick questions. Should your wife respect, or should the wife respect the husband? Yeah, she should. 
For those of you who are married, does your wife respect you? Yes or no? If yes, great. You're in a good spot. If no, if she does not, how have you addressed the problem? Have you made it all about the leg? Have you made it all about her lack of respect? Or are you looking into a complete cure that factors in all the possibilities that's in the marriage, and not just this isolated last four words of this passage, because the passage speaks to unity of Christ and the church. And if she's not respecting you, there are more things that you will have to examine that is creating this disunity, this complexity in your marriage. This is Life Over Coffee. I am Rick Thomas. Please, as you have time, uh, take a look at this article, Should a Wife respect her unkind husband. Thank you so much and God bless. Thanks for joining us. Learn more and get access to other resources at lifeovercoffee.com.